Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. So what we are going to begin with is actually a review. Uh, I want to make sure that we kind of understand where we are in the book, what we're looking at. Um, So if you recall, the book of Romans is really divided into four distinct or unique sections. Um, And I have kind of used Michael DeFazio's uh, how he breaks down the book. I've changed the words a little bit just because I can remember these. Um, So... We have uh, chapters 1 through 4 of Romans where Paul is really explaining God's righteousness, particularly in faith. How God's righteousness is revealed in faith, how it is understood by faith. And you'll notice each and every one of these is in some way, shape, or form talking about, revealing, explaining, arguing about the righteousness of God. So at the beginning, chapters 1 through 4, Paul is explaining God's righteousness in faith. Uh, In chapters 5 through 8, Paul is expounding God's righteousness in salvation. So he first of all explains it, and then he takes it and he sets it on a podium, and he says, let's look at all the different facets of how it works, what it has done for us. And so Paul really takes time and zones in and and hones in on God's righteousness, how it specifically is revealed to us in the salvation process. Um, In chapters 9 through 11, Paul is exposing God's righteousness even in Israel's unbelief. So we talk about the faithlessness of Israel. Paul's going to dedicate three whole chapters where he talks about nothing but Israel's unbelief and how even in that, God's righteousness is is revealed. And then finally in chapters 12 through 16, Paul is encouraging God's righteousness in Christian living. If this is the righteousness that has been given to us, it has been imputed to us positionally and God is working it into our lives, what should that look like in real, true living? So Paul breaks down, we have chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 16. So right now, we're still in chapters 1 through 4, right? We haven't even made it out of the first quarter of the book. Uh, We're looking at chapter 3 today, and I've kind of uh, changed my outline based on uh, what uh, Mark and and, uh, Michael are doing, uh, simply to, to make things fit. Uh, with the time that we have. So we're going to be looking at chapter 3 this week. And so we will uh, kind of be what I would say is hitting the pinnacle of where Paul Paul has been arguing all the way up to God's righteousness is in faith. He starts in chapter 1, uh, obviously with the opening in the book, and then in, in chapters uh, 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul talks about what the fundamental problem is. And the fundamental problem is that man seeks to replace God or usurp God's position. Um, the, the kind of the key phrase 
in, uh, in that section is original sin or sin nature. Paul reveals that the fundamental problem with humanity is we have a sin nature. Uh, we have this propensity to do evil, uh, to, to reject God's truth and try to make our own. Try to say, I know God, you said this is how it ought to be done, but I want to do it this way. So I'm going to do it this way. And so we call that the sin nature. And Paul says, our lives are undermined by our sin nature. And then we get to chapter 2, where Paul talks about judging, and it seems like Paul kind of takes a a right turn. But what I want to show you today is that really chapter 2 is essentially Paul saying, okay, I showed you how in all of humanity sin nature is the problem. Now I'm going to show you how it's the problem in those that ought to know better. The righteous. Uh, So talking about Jews and even the church, our sin nature undermines to where we begin to judge people that we deem as less worthy. We begin to look down upon them. We think they are worse sinners than us. And so Paul says that that where that comes from is our sin nature. It's the fact that we are uh, there. There is something wrong in us, and we have this propensity to continually do those things that are opposed to God, uh, because we we constantly try to usurp God. And so uh, we're going to focus in on on two concepts today. The two concepts are imputed righteousness and justification. These are two foundational, fundamental things that we have to understand about the gospel and, and how it works in order, to, uh, in order to understand the rest of the book. So, so you're going to hear me bring those things up. Uh, if, you, if, if at some point you say, eh, I don't understand what you're saying, throw a hand up and we'll, we'll take a time out. Okay, so that's kind of where we are in the book. So let's look at this slightly differently. Uh, and by the way, next week when you receive my notes, you will have my, not that drawing, you will have this drawing. So if you are trying to draw this, uh, I, I'm going to give it to you. So don't, don't panic. So as God looks down on humanity, it really, you know, I think it was, uh, I think it was Paul Harvey that, you know, first uh, popularized, there's two kinds of people in the world. Uh, through a story that he shared. But in reality, as God looks down on humanity, there really are two kinds of people. There are those that are the righteous, and then there are the wicked. This is something that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, how did He create them? What? Righteous? Okay. What are some other words we might use to describe them? Pure? Innocent. Innocent, right? Innocent. What, what was it that God said? If you eat of that, you will know the difference between good and evil. They didn't know the difference between good and evil. They only knew good. So we would, we would call that innocent. God created them in innocence or purity. And with the fall or with Uh, Adam and Eve sin, all of a sudden we had this knowledge now of good and evil. And so the obvious um, uh, extrapolation of that is that people are either good or evil, right? The difference is how God says we get into these positions. So, 
God looks down on humanity and He says the way that a person uh, moves from condemnation, uh, being classified as wicked, is not by doing right, but it's rather by submitting themselves to Me in the way that I say to live in a what we call a covenant relationship, a binding relationship that that binds that person to the truths and the foundations that that I have given. Now, in the Old Testament, that covenant, we typically think of as the law, right? The Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system, all of those kinds of things. Is that right? Did God say the way that Israel was going to usher in righteousness was through the law? That's Paul's foundational argument today. That question, Paul is going to answer that question. Now, let me give you the rest of the story because we're going to get into this in chapters 4 and 5. Paul says that the covenant actually goes to whom? Not to Moses, but to... Who comes before Moses? Abraham. The covenant was made to Abraham where God said, I am going to give you a child... And that child is going to be a blessing to all nations. And uh, Paul's going to eventually, in, in Romans and also in Galatians, make the argument that the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is not really Isaac. Isaac is part of the fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment is in the seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And so, the ultimate path to righteousness is through the covenant that God has delivered to Abraham, which is uh, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Okay, so, we've got this this view, righteous versus wicked. This is a a traditional view from the uh, uh, teachers of the law uh, through what we would call ancient Christianity now, first century Christianity. Uh, we've kind of lost this in, in modern times, this, this view. But this is the way that theologians down through the centuries have viewed what is taught in the Scriptures. And, and so the idea always comes back to a positional standing with God. Remember, these are not about behavior, right? We've talked about that the wicked can sometimes do righteous things and the righteous can sometimes do wicked things. Remember that whole discussion where Paul says those who don't have the law do by nature the things that are required by the law. They show that they are a law to themselves. That's the wicked doing righteous things without the, without the uh, uh, having the law. So, again, these are positional standings. So Paul is going to be explaining how do we get, get into this positional standing with God. Everybody thoroughly confused now. Because that was my goal. To thoroughly confuse you so that hopefully Paul can set us all straight. Okay, let's jump into chapter 3. So chapter 2, remember, is about judging. And then Paul concludes chapter 2 with this subject of being a Jew and kind of hiding behind your Jewishness, right? You know, you hide behind circumcision, you hide behind the law, and you think that in those things... Uh, you are especially blessed. And so in chapter 3, 
which is a continuation of chapter 2, just we put a number in there to make it easier to find, Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? So, if we have discussed that having the law and keeping the law, 90% of the time doesn't make you righteous, because that 5% actually shows that you are wicked, then Paul says, what advantage really is there in being a Jew? If, you, if it only takes one misstep, um, if it only takes one time to, to violate the law, what advantage then is there in being Jewish? And so Paul says, first of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Notice what Paul is saying here. We read the words of God in our mind, our uh, Western mind immediately goes to what? When we hear words of God, we think Bible, right? That's not what Paul's talking about, is it? What's Paul talking about? The words of God. Think about the Jewish nation. Who did they have? Abraham, Isaac, Moses, the prophets, the kings. Who did these individuals converse with? God. And what did they do? They wrote them down. They were the secretary, if you will, of God. You know, David wrote the Psalms and the prophets wrote the, the books of the Bible. Moses recorded the law, uh, the first five, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so, in essence, what, what Paul is saying is they have the covenants. They have the agreements where God spoke to them and, and revealed to them His plans and His purposes. And then verse 3 asks a very fascinating question that leads us to kind of ask the question, okay, if Israel had the ear of God, if you will, I mean, they could talk to God. God talked to them. They had the covenants of God. What went wrong? How did the Israelites mess it up? I mean, really, they, they should have had everything that they needed, right? So Paul asked the question this way, what if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul is going to point out three different things here that undermined the Jewish nation and their ability to to do the things of God. Um, I want to take you to a couple of other passages because Paul is going to quote from these. Turn to Psalm 51. Hold your finger in the book of Romans, but turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is about David. And if you read uh, the title to Psalm 51, which is actually part of the, the... These are not added notes. These are things that David himself would have written. It says, For the director of music... A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Who was David and who is Bathsheba? We're not Jewish, so we don't have the the portents of history upon us, so we have to we, we gotta get our minds thinking about who was David, who is Bathsheba? Okay, he was the king of Israel. He was said to be what kind of a man? man after God's own heart. 
And as king, he could have had any woman that he wanted, and he chose Bathsheba, who happened to be somebody else's wife. And then uh, he sent Bathsheba's husband off to war, and in order to hide the affair and the child that resulted from the affair, he had him killed. This is David, right? Man of faith, righteous, upstanding, Paul asked the questions, what if some of them did not have faith? And then he quotes from Psalm 51 to draw the mind to somebody that is the epitome of somebody who didn't have faith. Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions those acts that I commit that are opposed to you, and my sin or my propensity to constantly do evil is always before me. Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, but you desire truth in the inner parts. Paul asked the question in Romans 1, what if some did not have faith? And then he immediately turns and quotes from Psalm 51 that any good Jew would recognize as being a quotation from Psalm 51. And their mind would immediately go to David. It would immediately go to the story of David. And they would immediately begin to look at the question that Paul asks, what if some didn't have faith? And say, hey, David didn't have faith. David usurped the place of God and sought to establish himself as his own God. Will, will David's lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 4 of, of Romans chapter 3. Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That is a direct quotation from Psalm 51. It's very important when Paul pulls out a direct quotation from an Old Testament I'm not talking, if he links a bunch of them, sometimes it might not be as important. But when he pulls out one single quotation, you better figure out what that quotation is and why he puts it in there. And in this case, he's drawing our minds to David. So, the first thing that went wrong with the nation of Israel is a lack of faith. One of the reasons that they did not fulfill the, their, their covenant position as the righteous of God, is because they did not have faith. What is faith? Submission to the truth. The truth truth is that God is, and God has the right to be God, and we must submit to that. God had given David what the rules were, quote-unquote, as king, and David said, I don't care. I'm I'm not listening. I'm going to violate that. And so, they did not have faith. But again, Paul's question is, does their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? And Paul says, no, it doesn't. Let's go on. Uh, Verse 5, If our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Again, 
the, the, the Jewish readers, particularly of Romans, would have been thinking about David. They would have been thinking about his unrighteous acts. And then Paul asked this question. So, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more, more clearly, what, what shall we say? Is God then unjust in bringing His wrath on us? We are sinful. Paul has already said we're sinful. We have this, you know, remember the broken cart illustration, the Walmart cart? Uh, and, and I was talking with somebody yesterday, and I was talking about this illustration. I said, it's a great illustration. You know, because when you get it, you think, this isn't too bad, right? You start off in Walmart, you throw a couple things in, it's not too bad. What happens when that cart gets heavy? You can't control it. I mean, you're, you're running into little old ladies, and, and it, it, the longer we proceed and the more junk we throw in there, the worse it gets. Our sin nature just grows and becomes more powerful. And so... Here Paul asks a different... The first question is, what if, what if some people are unfaithful? Does that undermine God's faithful? The next question is, he says, well, well maybe God isn't really being just, right? Because we're broken, we're damaged. He knows we can't do good. And so if my unrighteousness righteousness brings about God's mercy and shows how good He really is, He ought to really be happy about that, Right? But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, as some claim, Let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. So not only were the Israelites lacking faith, but they also acted in unrighteousness. The fact that they had a sin nature undermined their covenant position with God. They didn't believe, they didn't trust Him, and they didn't act according to the terms of the covenant. And then Paul, in my opinion, asks the, uh, the most beautiful question. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? All of a sudden with this one question, Paul ties together Romans 1, Romans 2, and the first part of chapter 3. Romans 1 talks about our sin nature. How we got in the condition that we are. We rejected the truth that God had revealed. We, we turned our backs on that. Romans chapter 2 talks about once, once we have gotten over that in the sense that we have become in a position with God where we are in a right standing with Him, whether it's as, as Jews or as Christians, um, we begin to look down on other people because of our sinfulness. We get here to the, to the first third or whatever it is of chapter 3 and Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we... Us Romans, sitting here, reading this letter together, are we any better than the ancient Gentiles? Or the ancient Jews? We, we might even uh, adapt this to today. Are we, Mike, and all of us gathered here, any better than the Romans, or the Jewish believers, or the Gentiles that came before them? Let's see what Paul says. Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all 
under sin. Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? So, God looks down from heaven and He says there's two kinds of people, but in reality, everybody's here. Everybody's wicked. There is no one who does good. Let's take a look at another psalm, this time Psalm 14. This is actually a quotation from Psalm 14. You will recognize Psalm 14. It is from David. And the reason that you will recognize it is because of the way that it starts. Again, Jewish readers would have, would have grasped this instantaneously that Paul was quoting from Psalm 14 as he is talking about the unrighteousness and the wickedness of everybody. But it's the way that Psalm 14 starts that you and I are going to find offensive. Verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. When we deny who God is, the things that we understand about Him, when we deny who He is, in our heart we say, there is no God. And so therefore I must be God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That is Paul's view of God's view of humanity. There is not one person who God can look upon and say because of their effort, because of their desire, because of their choices, because of something I can view them favorably. There's no one. How are you feeling about yourself right now? I want to say this and I want you to hear it with the fact that we are not done. Right? God has not spoken with finality what He's going to say. In essence, what Paul is saying that God is saying here is we as human beings are worthless. Because the character that originally identified us as innocent is gone. So what do we do? Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We talked last week in Romans chapter 2 that the enlightenment that comes from grace that leads us to repentance can produce one of two responses in us. One is arrogance and one is brokenness. We can look at our sinfulness and say, man, I'm glad I'm no longer a sinner like that person over there. That, that's arrogance, right? 
And Paul says to those people, do not judge. Or it can produce a brokenness in us that says, God, thank you for saving me. So, here Paul says, the purpose of the law is to bring about a consciousness of sin. It was never intended to bring about a righteousness. And the Jews had had sought to bring about a righteousness. So, there are three things then that undermine them. The lack of faith, the unrighteousness, and the third one I didn't uh, specifically spell out until we got all, all the way through it. Duplicity. What was the number one uh, phrase that Jesus liked to use for the Pharisees? Does anybody know? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. You actors, you players. You who put on a mask to pretend like you were something else. They were duplicitous or um, hypocrites. Paul says we are all under sin. uh, And then he quotes from, from Psalm 14. And then we get to the remedy. I am thankful, and the reason uh, Mark and uh, Michael made a break here, and when I got here I thought, oh, I really don't want to leave it hanging here. You know, I don't know about you, but I already feel worthless enough. I don't need to wait a week to, be, uh, to, to hear the remedy. So we're, gonna, we're just going to jump into the remedy. So verse 21 begins with a, a transitional word. I love transitional words in the Bible because they always come at a place in time when the tension is palpable. We get to this place where there is this conflict, there is this tension, and then you get a transitional word. The transitional word here is but. Paul begins, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Um, when you see that phrase, what is what is Paul indicating when he when he uses that phrase that the law and the prophets testify to it? What's that? Okay, so the law and the prophets would have been Old Testament, right? So he's saying that the law and the prophets in the Old Testament really it tells us about Jesus. It points us to the one that would come. As Paul says in Galatians, the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, that would come to be the fulfillment of all of these promises. So, uh, sometimes the Jewish people look at the Old Testament and they say, well, it doesn't even talk about Christ. Yes, it does. It's just you have to look at it in in such a way as to see it. But now, Paul says, a righteousness from God apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So when you see the word righteousness, your mind needs to immediately go to this picture and remember we're talking about a positional standing. God is saying through Paul that there is a positional standing that is now available through me that is through faith. And the faith has to be in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not in obeying the law. It's not in doing the right things. But rather it is in the fundamental uh, life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely 
by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Boy, there's a lot to unpack in there. So, let's, uh, let's start with this concept of righteousness. So what Paul is saying is God is going to give us the same standing that He has. God is said to be righteous, equitable of character, perfect. Paul says here, God is willing to put that stamp on us and view us the same way that He views Himself. He's willing to impute, to transfer His righteousness to us. Why? Why is God willing to transfer His righteousness to us? Because we're so good? No. The first part of chapter 3 tells us we're not that good. Matter of fact, we're not good at all. So why is God willing to do that? He loves us. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Okay? He loves us. Why else? Why is God willing to transfer His righteousness, His standing, His perfection, His equity to us? It was the only way. We ourselves couldn't do it. Okay? Sinfulness undermines us. Someone had to pay the penalty for what had happened. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. Any Jews in here? What's a sacrifice of atonement? Okay. One time a year, on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people would gather, and the high priest would do two things. He would confess the sins of the nation over the scapegoat. And they would turn the scapegoat off into the wilderness to be killed by beasts, to starve to death, whatever. And then they would take another goat, and they would sacrifice that goat, and the the blood would then be applied to the mercy seat. All of that process was called the sacrifice of atonement. So, in one living picture from the Old Testament, in, in Romans, Paul says, this is what Jesus is. Jesus is the scapegoat that all of our uh, uh, sins are applied to. Why did Jesus have to go into the wilderness for 40 days? Have you ever thought of that? It's a picture. Just as the scapegoat had to go into the wilderness, so Jesus did. Anyways, that's something else. So, so all of the sins of the world had to be applied to Jesus so that Paul could later say that he who knew no sin became sin for us. When Jesus hung on the cross, my sins, every single one of them, thought, word, deed, were paid for. And my sin nature. We forget about this one all the time. Not only did Jesus have to pay for the sins that I commit, have committed, or will commit, but He also had to pay for my propensity to constantly turn away from God. Okay? Sacrifice of atonement. And then the second part of that is, there had to be a sacrifice, 
a blood offering that could be applied to the mercy seat, the, the dwelling place of God, to actually act as a covering. Now, on the Day of Atonement sacrifice, that was good for 364 days. With Jesus, it's good for eternity. So, Paul says, all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So we have the sacrifice of atonement. In the sacrifice of atonement, then, we can be... And Paul uses this word, we can be justified. Justified is a legal declaration whereby a judge looks at somebody who is accused of something and says, you are not going to be held accountable for it. Uh, You may be acquitted, you may be pardoned, uh, but in this case, what is happening is, Somebody else is coming to take the rap for us. Somebody else is going to pay the penalty. Somebody else is going to stand up and say, I didn't do it, but I'll take the punishment. And that is what Jesus is doing here. And so Paul says we can be justified by the grace of God through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And it's because Jesus came as a sacrifice of atonement. So why did God do this? Uh, the latter part of verse 25. He did this to demonstrate His justice because up until that time, in His forbearance, He had left those sins that were committed unpunished. From the time of Adam and Eve all the way up until the moment that Jesus gives His life on the cross, those sins never really had a punishment. That is important. Because there are people who are going to tell you, well, if you reject Jesus, you're going to have to pay for your sins. That's actually not theologically accurate. What you will pay for, what you will be held accountable for, is rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you reject the sacrifice that God offers, if you reject His truth, that's not faith. If you say, I'm going to earn my way there. I'm going to be good. Yeah, Jesus, I know you You sacrificed. That's fine. You know, Bob needs that. Kathy needs that. Noah needs that. I don't need that. I'm just going to be good. You will suffer for that rejection. Yes? That's what all the false religions of the world are about. Trying to be good enough. Trying to, if you will, you know... With their life scale, but a whole bunch of good works yep. on one side, so that it outweighs their bad. Yep. I mean that's that's a Mormonism, that's uh, you know, Catholicism, that's mm-hmm. uh, Hinduism, that's yep. You're you're Hinduism, right. I mean, everything. Okay, so we have uh, the first term is imputed righteousness, the idea that God declares our position as free from condemnation and in good standing with Him because of Christ's sacrifice. So God looks down on us and He doesn't see us as wicked. He sees us in submission to the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So He only sees Christ and so therefore He counts us as righteous. Right, uh, righteous. 
And so that is imputed righteousness. Penalty of sin, uh, here God is paying our, uh, the, the penalty of our sin nature, our flesh and our sins, the individual acts that bear out our rejection of God uh, as God. And then finally, the sacrifice of atonement, the Old Testament sacrifice that enabled the previously committed sins to be applied to sacrificial animals. All of this then allows us to be called into a position of justified. Justified is the answer to the first issue of sin, which is the penalty of sin. The penalty that we were under because we sinned against God is death and separation from Him. And because we are justified, that penalty is removed. We no longer have to pay sin's price. Remember, when we got uh, down there to uh, verse 20, I said how worthless we are. Are you beginning to feel worth something? That God would send His Son to take your place because He knew there was nothing you could do about it. You see, while God looks on us and says, there's nothing of value there, I'm going to make value there. I am going to bring about a value in and of that individual. Um, Verse 27, where then, let's see, yeah, we finished that. So, where then is boasting? It is excluded on what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. We uphold it. Paul is then going to go into chapter 4 and 5 and give us illustrations of how people were justified by faith and how God has brought about this. But Romans 1, 2, and 3, Romans 1 is the problem. We are sinful. Romans 2, even when the problem is fixed, we can mess up the problem because of our sinfulness. Romans chapter 3 gives us the ultimate remedy for the problem, which is God will step in and reveal Himself and redeem us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, every week we try and uh, boil things down to one singular central truth that becomes an anchor point for our soul. So in those moments when we are struggling, we have something to hold on to, right? So this week is the idea that we have a standing, or there is a standing that is available that we can have by faith, through grace, where the condemnation of sin or the penalty of sin that we were under is removed and applied to Christ's death. Imagine for a moment at yourself as a political prisoner, a, uh, a prisoner, a convict, whatever, and you're standing before a judge facing the wrath of the system, the penalty that awaits you for things that you have done. Okay, You're not being unjustly accused here. These are things that you stand guilty of. 
And all of a sudden, the judge looks at you, slams the gavel down, and says, you will not be held accountable. In essence, that's what Paul has done in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. He has proven our guilt, he has shown our guilt, and he has said God will not hold us accountable for that. So, in those moments when we feel guilt pressing in on us, when we feel that we need to earn the favor of God, we need to work harder so that God will look upon us favorably. When all of a sudden our past failures are brought up and thrown in our face, and we are conscious of them, when you are fearful that somebody might know your secrets, and when you feel unworthy, open up your Bible and read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through the end of the chapter, and remember that the judge has said, you are not guilty. And also, remember in the moments when you are pressured by the religious to act a certain way, to do a certain thing, that you now have freedom. You are not under the constraints of trying to maintain righteousness through the law. Now, does that mean that you can go and do whatever you want? Paul's going to talk about that later. I'll give you the glimpse. No, it doesn't mean that. It means we are going to be guided by some fundamental principles like loving God and loving others. And when we act within the guidelines of those two things, we won't want to just go do whatever, right? And I tried to, as I, as I was sitting uh, thinking, okay, how, how do I want to summarize all this before I, I, I turn the, the class back over to them to let them talk? And all of a sudden, the words of a song came to me. Uh, some of you may know the song. It, it, the, the author and the singer was Rich Mullins. How many of you know Rich Mullins? Okay, good. few of you do. Rich Mullins is one of my favorite songwriters. Um, there are so many things that I appreciate him. He was obviously killed in a, in a car accident. Uh, and the song is called, So If I Stand. Anybody know that song? Okay, a few of you do. These are the lyrics to it. Uh, again, these will be on the sheet. I would encourage you this week to uh, listen to the song. You can find it on YouTube, other places. It, in my opinion, was written with Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 in mind. It begins by saying, There's more that rises in the morning than just the sun. There's more that shines in the night than just the moon. It's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm in a shelter that is larger than this room. There's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance that I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall in the grace that first brought me to you. If I sing, let me sing for the joy that has borne in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. 
the reason that that song, in my opinion, encapsulates everything that this is about is that song is about grace and the gospel. And Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 is about God's grace as, as it is revealed to us in the gospel. So, as you face life this week, you can face it a couple different ways. You know, we could face it like Romans chapter 2. So I'm better than that person. Arrogance versus brokenness. You may be facing something else where, where you are tempted to Romans chapter 1 it. I know there is a God. I know that God has spoken about this situation, but I'm going to reject His truth. And I'm going to do it my way. Maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive or some other issue. And God has spoken to that issue and you have the opportunity to submit to that truth and to live by faith this week or to reject God. Maybe it's you know fear and guilt and unworthiness, uh, past failures that weigh over you. You have the opportunity this week to live in the swirl of all that or you have the opportunity to stand in the grace that has been given to you and the freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. The choice is ultimately ours, isn't it? That's what faith is. Will I submit to the truth of God in this moment or will I deny God and do it my own way? Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.